Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This Sunday is the celebration of Pentecost, and we get the very specifically Pentecost text from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. That'll be our epistle reading. We'll start with the Old Testament text from Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14, and we conclude with a gospel text, which is a a little bit of a breaking up of John here. It's John 15, verses 26 and 27. And then John chapter 16, verse 4b, so the second part of the verse, through verse 15. So we start with the Old Testament reading, Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. This is a familiar text for most Christians in today's church, as it's one of those that gets covered in Sunday school classes and It's the valley of the dry bones for the prophet Ezekiel. So let's take a deeper look. We'll break it into three paragraphs, starting with verses 1 through 6. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, Can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord Yahweh, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. The first verse of the text introduces the setting that God has led Ezekiel out into a valley. We're not told which valley specifically here in the text itself. The the leading out actually sounds pretty interesting. It's intriguing to me. God's hand is upon him. The Spirit brings him out. Can you think of another time when the Spirit brings someone out? Perhaps the baptism of Jesus, where after Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. That's an interesting thought. I'm thinking of this, though, a little bit more in the connection to Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, where the Lord leads Philip to go down to Gaza, to the desert road, and he gets to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, an official of the Queen of Ethiopia. And that gospel goes back to Ethiopia to share Christ with an entire nation, But right after that, right after he baptized the eunuch, God whooshes him away. That's not the literal word in the Greek, but if you read that text in Acts chapter 8, it sure sounds like God takes him from one spot and places him in another. The sci-fi idea of teleportation, in a sense. It wouldn't surprise me if this were similar here in the way that this is worded. 
that the hand of Yahweh has done this, that God has brought him out into this valley. God has set him down in the midst of this valley. A miraculous kind of event. Although you could talk about this as a vision instead of an actual physical event, which undoes all that conversation. As we look to the valley, though, it's full of bones. And bones represent death, right? When you see bones, just a pile of bones, you know something has died. Whether they're human bones from the death of a man, or if they're, you know, the bones of a, a rat that's swallowed up by an owl. Bones are a symbol of death. And so God takes Ezekiel and he walks him through that valley, through all of those bones. And Ezekiel observes for us that there were very many on the surface. What we learn down in verse 11 is that this valley represents the house of Israel, as does all the bones that are in them then. And so, yes, there are very many. This is the entirety of God's people. And they're dead. They were very dry, so they're not just dead. They've been dead a long time. God speaks to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? Man's answer to that question would be no, right? If, if you go to a museum and you see a collection of bones, can those bones live? No. No, they're, they're long dead and that's how they're going to stay. But God's answer to that's going to be different. And Ezekiel actually gives a different answer, right? Ezekiel doesn't want to answer. He responds, O Lord Yahweh, you know. He's not the only one in Scripture to respond to the Lord like that, which teaches us that perhaps it's a beneficial way for us to talk to God. Only the Lord knows the answer to this question. Can the dead live again? Now, we today do know the answer to that question, right? Can the dead live again? Yes, that is the promise that we have in Christ. That's where we're going with this text. So hang in there with me. We're almost to it. God speaks to him and says, Prophesy over these bones. To prophesy, we need to talk about the work of a prophet. A prophet is a man who speaks the word of God to God's people. Whatever it is that God has to say, it is the prophet's job to share that message. The Hebrew word for prophesying, the, the verb is to either prophesy, or you could translate it to rave like a madman, as that is how prophets are, were often seen as you think of some of the accounts of the prophets in the Old Testament. So, when it says prophesy over these bones, this is the word of God. Ezekiel, as God's prophet, is going to speak God's word to God's people. Dead as they are, he's going to speak it. O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Now let me tell you, just as this is true of this valley of, of the dry bones, it is true of us as well. We're going to see this. We're going to see a parallel to us in the New Testament. We'll come back to that here shortly. 
Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. You shall live. God putting breath into someone will hopefully bring your your thoughts back to the Garden of Eden. As God makes Adam in the garden out of the dust of the earth and then breathes the breath of life into Adam. It is God who gives life. Notice the, the subject, I, I will. God is the actor, we are the recipient, or in this case, the people of Israel are the recipient of God's action. He will lay sinew, he will cause flesh, he will cover, he will put breath, and they shall live. And when they live, they shall know that he is Yahweh. So what is this all about? I mean, what's going on here? Well, in, in its context, Ezekiel is proclaiming this word to a dead people. Not earthly death like we think of. The Bible does describe two kinds of death. It describes what we would say is, I guess we'd say the first death, the idea of the physical death, the body dying and being laid in the grave. And so this does, and in the wording, this looks like the first death, but truly it is a second death kind of thing. The second death is more the spiritual death. It's the absence of God in a person. And when you read about the second death in the New Testament, typically from the pen of John, you learn that it's a reference to judgment and being sent to hell. And so what's going on here is Ezekiel, in the very early part of the 6th century B.C., so in the 590s, the 580s, 570s, Ezekiel is God's prophet to the people of Judah. They are his people, they are to follow him, they are to listen to him, they are to obey his commands, and that he will be their God, he will bless them in the promised land that he has given to them, But over and over, time and time again, they have rejected him, they have renounced him, they have followed their own gods of choice. They've not been his people. And so God allows, because of their unfaithfulness, I shouldn't even say God allows, God causes their destruction. God brings about their destruction. He brings the world's superpower, the Babylonians, down upon them to destroy their pride. And the Babylonians take the Jewish people, they're the people of Judah, come to be known as the Jews. He takes, they take them back to Babylon. Here's your valley of dry bones. Very long, very dry, very long dead. They have been dead in their faith. And yet God is going to restore them. He's granting hope. This is being spoken to the exiled people. This is giving hope to them that they will be restored. That God will give them their land again. That they will get to live. Which does give you a hint at how they saw their life in Babylon, right? That it would be a death of some kind. Now again, all of this is actually going to be mirrored in the New Testament. It's going to be paralleled for us. 
Ephesians 2 is an excellent place to turn for that, right? In Ephesians 2 verse 1, we learn that we were dead in our trespasses. You and me, dead in our sin. That's our starting point. And the dead cannot help themselves, right? We've got so much of a desire in American Christianity to talk about we do this, we do that. We, we have to choose to believe in Jesus. We have to let him into our hearts. Oh, we're dead. The dead can't do that. And so, instead, God does it for us. For it is by grace that you are saved. Through faith, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. God has done this. God has given you faith. God has restored you. God has put sinew and flesh upon you. He has covered you. He has put breath in you. You shall live and you shall know that he is Yahweh. He is Jesus. There's your parallel. So beautifully, well, so beautifully worked into the text. I mean, it's a, in a sense, it's a twofold prophecy idea that we're going to see, right? First fulfillment is going to be when God rescues and redeems the Judaites from Babylon. The second fulfillment of this comes in Jesus Christ as he raises us from the dead. All right, the second paragraph is verses 7 through 10. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Ezekiel does his job. Right? His job is to speak God's word, and so God gives him a message to proclaim, and he proclaims it. And then we see that God's word does stuff. Right? The word of God, when it is spoken, is not just an empty word. It's not a hollow thing. It actually accomplishes the purpose for which God has sent it. He spoke those words by a different prophet. You're welcome to look those up. God's word is active. It works. And so as Ezekiel speaks, the word is at work and the bones are coming together. Now, a possible connection in our Old Testament and epistle text is this idea of a sound, but it's not the same sound. Here it's the, the actual coming together of the bones as they rattle against each other, which would have made some, some noise. Whereas in the New Testament reading, the sound is the Holy Spirit coming upon them. So it's different, but you can see the connection there with that word in English at least. So the bones have come together. And, and what God has spoken about sinews and flesh and skin, that has happened, but there is no breath. Isaiah notice, uh, Ezekiel sorry, notices that there is no breath. And so the Lord speaks to him again, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. 
There's a lot here. First, breath and wind in Hebrew are the same word. Ruach. And spirit is that also same word. So breath, wind, and spirit are the three ways that you tend to translate Ruach when you're working with a Hebrew text and trying to bring it into English. So prophesy to the Ruach, to the breath, wind, spirit. Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, come. Breathe on them that they may live. We see that connection in the Old Testament text, I mean, right to the first paragraph, that God said he would put breath in them that they would live. We see it in the account of creation, again, with Adam, as we've mentioned already today. But let's look at the parallel to the New Testament. Again, the Son of Man here in the text is a reference to Ezekiel, is to speak the word of God, to send the Spirit creating life again. New life for the exile. But again, check this in the New Testament. Who is the Son of Man in the New Testament? That's Jesus, perhaps Jesus' own favorite title for himself, as he likes to call himself the Son of Man. And he prophesies, he speaks the word of God, he speaks to the Spirit of God, and he sends the Spirit into creation to create life. Right? That's Pentecost. Perhaps our best connection of the Old Testament to the the actual festival of the day to Pentecost is right here, this, that Jesus would speak to the Holy Spirit and send the Spirit into creation that we might live. Because it is the Spirit who creates faith in us. It is the Spirit who gives us life in that way. Ezekiel once again does as God has commanded him to do. And the breath, wind, spirit, ruach, comes into them. They live, they stand on their feet, an exceedingly great army. I'll point out that word here for a moment. This, this word army shows up in the Old Testament a lot more often than it normally does in your English Bible. Um, you, you're probably familiar with seeing God's name or even his title listed as the Lord of Hosts with LORD being in all caps. Well, all capital LORD is Yahweh. It's the divine name he gives to us to speak of him. But in that phrase, it's not hosts either. Yahweh of, uh, the, and, and the host of Yahweh. Well, what's that even mean, right? What What is all the heavenly host a reference to? The better Hebrew to English translation of that word would be armies. So that title, the Lord of hosts in your Bible, next time you read it, read it as Yahweh of armies and see how that impacts your reading of God's word. We are the army of God. When God brings the Israelites out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, they are described this way as being a a great host. Again, read that as an army. This is God's army, and he will fight for his people. It's the interesting part of that. Even though we are called the army of God, he doesn't need us to fight. He fights for us. Our final paragraph, verses 11 through 14. 
in our Old Testament reading today. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares Yahweh. So again, verse 11 clues us into what's going on here. This is the house of Israel that we're talking about. These are the people of God who have Again, abandoned him, so they've been exiled, and in their exile they complain. They cry out that they are dead. They are without hope. They're cut off from God. They're cut off from the promised land. They're cut off from life. And this is an Old Testament cycle that we see quite a bit. You read through the book of Judges, you see that cycle repeating itself over and over and over again. The people are enjoying a time of peace, and in that time of peace they sin against the Lord and abandon him, so the Lord gives them over to oppression of some kind, and in that oppression they then repent, they cry out to God for deliverance, and he sends them a deliverer, a judge, and that deliverer rescues them, they have a time of peace, and that all continues again. Even with the exile, which is you know 500 years after the period of judges has come to a close, you still see something similar. They have, in a time of peace, they have grown away from the Lord. They have abandoned the Lord, and they have started worshiping other gods. And so God gives them over to oppression at the hands of the Babylonians. And when they're in that oppression, they cry out, and God is going to send them a deliverer by the name of Cyrus. Isaiah actually prophesies of Cyrus by name, a couple centuries before Cyrus is even alive. King Cyrus is the first fulfillment of this prophecy because he will, in verse 12 here, he will open their graves, he will open up the doors of Babylon as a nation, and he will allow the Israelites, the Judaites, to leave Babylon and return to their home, return to their promised land, and rebuild. So their graves are opened. They saw Babylon as their death, their exile. And their exile is put to an end. Cyrus sends them home. The second fulfillment of this text comes again through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will open our graves and he will raise us from our graves. This is a reference to his second coming, that when Christ returns, indeed this happens. He, he will take our bodies and put them back together again. He will unite soul and body again, the breath of life in us that he can alone give, that we get to live with him forevermore. So in the sense of the, the Judaites in the, still the 6th century B.C., they get to know he's Yahweh when he redeems them and he brings them back to his 
promised land that he had given to them. That's verse 14, I will place you in your own land. For us, that own land is the new promised land, the paradise that awaits us, where Christ is king and the feasting never ends. And then it ends with the declaration of the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares Yahweh. When the Lord makes a statement like that, you know it will come to pass. He has not broken his promise. He will be faithful, as he is always faithful. Our second text, the epistle reading this week, which really isn't an epistle, but it's the first time we've seen the book of Acts used as an epistle text this year. It tended to be a first reading instead of an Old Testament reading over the season of Easter. But now we have it here for Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And this is, essentially, this is the Pentecost text. So let's, let's do a quick backtracking here before we even read the text. What's going on here? First, you do have penta, pent, five, as a prefix there. Pentecost is really a reference of 50 days. So back in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, before he ascends into heaven, Jesus gives the disciples the instruction that they are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he ascends. And that's 40 days after Easter. So this is 10 days later. This is 50 days after Easter that we see these events. Now we need to do a doubling back and go even further back than just the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We need to go back into the Old Testament to really other words of Jesus, right? The whole whole of Scripture is the Word of God, and Jesus is God, so all of Scripture is his Word. That would make things difficult for those red-letter Bibles. Anyway, when you go back to Leviticus chapter 23, you see the calendar of holy days laid out for God's people. And it starts... On the 15th day of the first month with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now that's a seven-day feast that they are to hold every year. It remembers the Passover, right? It goes back to Exodus chapter 12 where they're preparing to leave Egypt in the 10th plague, the, the slaughter of the firstborn, that the Lord has given them the protection from that, that they sacrifice the lamb and when they sacrifice the lamb and take its blood and paint it on their doorpost, that the Lord would see that, he would skip over their homes, and they would live. They would be spared from the destruction of that plague. That's a celebration they, had a, they hold every year. Again, week-long, seven-day festival, feast of unleavened bread, 15th day of the first month. The next day, the 16th day of the first month, is the first of sorry the feast of first fruits this is the day where they take the first sheaf of the barley harvest and they elevate that as an offering before the lord it is 50 days after that day so at the 50 days after the elevation of the first barley sheaf that they would then celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Let me read you a snippet of that Leviticus chapter 23 text to give you this picture. 
These are the appointed feasts of Yahweh, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is Yahweh's Passover. Twilight is when the sun goes down. That's the, Yahweh, that's the Passover of Yahweh. On the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of the unleavened bread to Yahweh. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. All right, so on that 14th day of the month at twilight is Yahweh's Passover. We would pair that then in the New Testament to Maundy Thursday into really uh, that evening as the sun is setting. Jesus and the disciples celebrating the Lord's Supper together, celebrating the Passover. That would make the 15th day then the day on which our Lord rests in the tomb. Because the, the day for them starts in the evening. It starts at twilight. So the 14th day is the, the celebration of the Passover. And that goes Thursday evening until Friday evening. So Christ celebrating the Lord's Supper with his disciples all the way through his death on Friday afternoon. That's the 14th day. And then the 15th day is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This particular year, it happens to line up well right with the Sabbath. And so that Sabbath day of rest is from Friday night until Saturday night when Christ is in the tomb. And then on the, the following day, from Saturday night until Sunday night, that is the 16th day of the month, the Feast of first fruits, the elevation of the first sheaf of barley from their harvest. That would be Easter, when Christ has raised from the dead the elevation of the first fruit. Which is why, when you read the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes Jesus as being the first fruit of the resurrection. And if he's first, that implies that there's more, right? Which is a reference to the rest of us as the church. So 50 days after the Feast of the first fruits, they celebrate Pentecost. Fifty days after the resurrection of Jesus on Easter, we celebrate Pentecost. And that brings us to our text. So they are celebrating, right? We're going to see all these Jewish people in Jerusalem. They are celebrating the Feast of Pentecost, just as they had flocked to Jerusalem that holy week for the celebration of the Passover. They have returned many of them to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 to start us out. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So just as the crowds have come to Jerusalem, the disciples are in Jerusalem. Now, remembering Luke chapter 24, Jesus has instructed them to remain there, and so they have. Here they are, together in one place, in a house. We're not told here specifically whose house, they're in a house together. Is this still together out of fear? Are they still afraid of what the Jewish 
leaders might do to them or what the Romans might do to them, perhaps. That's not told to us here, but it is Pentecost that changes everything for them. It is Pentecost when they finally get it. Like, everything clicks in this moment. Remember, as you read your way through the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples, on a regular basis, just don't get it. They often look foolish. That changes here. When Jesus sends the helper, the paraclete, the comforter, when he sends the Holy Spirit upon them, this all changes. And they understand. It gives a little bit of a new meaning to that idea of the the cartoons and you get the light bulb over somebody's head when they have an idea or when they finally understand something. The tongues of fire coming to rest over their heads because the disciples finally get it. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit, however. Not a cartoonist drawing. A sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind. Remember the connection in the Hebrew language there, breath, wind, spirit. We're now in Greek, but still it's coming forward for us. And that spirit, that wind, that sound from heaven filled the house. God's good at filling homes. Well, I should say houses. I don't really see that word home so much in the scripture. The Lord fills his house in the Old Testament several times. When the tabernacle is first erected, the Lord's presence fills it. When the temple is first constructed, his presence fills that house. And now, as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon his people, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Lord has filled not just the physical house that is the whatever mixture of wood and dirt and and construction materials they had. No. The Lord has very much more specifically filled the house that is the body, the person. And for that, you can see the reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul talks about how our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, that that God dwells within us. And that has happened here. The tongues of fire hopefully bring you back to what John the Baptist declared as he was baptizing people at the Jordan River. Matthew chapter 3 verse 11, he he tells them that there is one coming after him who will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. And the most direct reference we have to that is right here. It is the reference to Pentecost, to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit as Jesus sends the Spirit upon his church, upon his people starting his church, really. And they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's a gift of God, right? The Spirit gave to them. But we're going to talk about what these other tongues are in the next paragraph. So let's hold that for a moment and look at verses 5 through 13. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, 
devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Verse 5. There were Jews dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Devout men is a reference to Old Testament believers. These are people who believed in Yahweh, who were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They're still Jews because they haven't seen the Messiah. They haven't, they haven't believed in that yet. Is this dwelling word temporary or permanent here is an interesting question. Again, I mentioned that with Pentecost, multiple people have converged on Jerusalem again for this festival of weeks. And it seems both that there are those Jews who live in Jerusalem permanently, but also that there would be those who are there temporarily for this feast, this festival. And really, it's going to be the next paragraph as Peter begins preaching. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So he addresses not just residents of the city of Jerusalem, but residents of the region of Judea, which used to be called the country of Judah, the people of God. So we've got the locals, but then we've also got those who come from the surrounding areas as well, as Peter makes that proclamation. So with verse 5, I think we can bring that back and see both the permanent and the temporary residents, the Jews of both groups. And so you've got Old Testament believers from every nation, right? God's Old Testament people, they had moments of faithfulness. They had moments where they indeed did share the proclamation of, of Yahweh, of who he was, what he did for them. Much the same as in the New Testament, we get to proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so that crowd hears the sound. They come together and they're bewildered because, verse 6, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now we have to pause on this. This is not ordinary speaking in tongues. The picture that we have as American Christians of the speaking in tongues today is really gibberish. It's the Pentecostal, it's the charismatic churches that tend to be those who are all over this idea of speaking in tongues. But what theirs looks like is it's uninterpretable gibberish and they will intentionally tell you that it is not an earthly language that they speak but apparently it's a heavenly language that that perhaps we would someday know in paradise I, I couldn't tell you that part 
But that's not the picture you ever get in Scripture. So you've got speaking in tongues accompanied by interpretation of tongues, which is missing in our charismatic churches today. And it's all for the building up of the people. But what we see here is is even unique from that. So there I would make the argument that speaking in tongues is a reference probably back to what happened to the Tower of Babel. God scattered the languages of the earth. So when someone is speaking in tongues, they are speaking a different language, but perhaps it's a different language that is still a language that is recognizable in this world. I don't know for certain, but what I do know is it is here. And again, I know this is a different occurrence of that because of what it looks like. You know, you go to a church and there's somebody speaking in tongues. Nobody sitting there understands except for the interpreter. The interpreter gives the interpretation. Suddenly everybody understands and everybody's edified. They they give thanks to the Lord for this proclamation that has occurred among them. That's kind of the New Testament picture of the speaking in tongues. But again, this is different. We have 11, no, 12, because Matthias was added into their midst. We have the 12 apostles gathered together. The Spirit has filled them, and they are speaking. Right, They began to speak. They're all speaking. You see that in verse 7? Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? You have a group of 12 men all speaking at the same time, together from one location. Imagine this for a moment. Just imagine it, right? Put it in your mind. You are at a, a large event, whether it's a, a stadium or an auditorium or, or wherever it is, and there's a group in the middle of the, the gathering, 12 of them, and they're all talking. And they're all talking in different languages. Or, even just for our English understanding, maybe they're all talking in English, but they're all saying different things. Like you got 12 conversations going on. How chaotic is that scene? Have you ever tried listening to two conversations at once? How'd that work out? Yet we have 12 conversations going on all at the same time. And everyone who's listening hears it and understands it. It is as though these 12 men, these 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost have one voice. They are all speaking. They're all speaking in such a way, because they're speaking different tongues, but they're all speaking in such a way that everyone present can hear and understand the gospel being proclaimed in their own language. The way I typically view this myself is that they are, they are speaking a truly universal tongue. That this is a one-time miracle we don't see for the rest of Scripture, the rest of the history of the church. That the Lord blessed them with the ability that day to speak so that everyone present could hear them in their own native language. And you get the list, right? What a list of people from all over the region, from every nation under heaven who have come, and they all hear it, and they all understand it. And what is it that they hear? Verse 11. The mighty works of God. And what are those mighty works of God? 
just as it was in the Old Testament. God delivered his people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Exodus 12, Exodus 13, they're supposed to celebrate that every year. They're supposed to tell of his mighty deeds. They're supposed to tell their children what has happened so their children will also believe. They're supposed to tell the sojourner in their midst why they celebrate this so that the sojourner might also wish to celebrate with them the greatness of God. And so now we have the Old Testament Passover connected to the New Testament Passover, which is Christ's body and blood for us upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And we think of the Lord's Supper. And so what are these mighty works of God in verse 11? The forgiveness of sins. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed to all these Jews who are gathered together. Some of them, verse 12, ask the catechetical question, right? Luther's question that we see so often as Lutherans in our, as our, we study our small catechism. What does this mean? Well, that's what they ask here as well. Others, however, mock them, make fun of them, say they're filled with wine. That is a mockery that makes no sense, right? How many times have you known someone who gets drunk and when they're drunk they suddenly make perfect sense? We'll read the rest of the text together. Verses 14 through 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter has that tendency to be the bold one amongst the group, doesn't he? And so he's the one that stands up and he begins the address of the crowd that has gathered together. And we already covered the first part, men of Judea and those who dwell in Jerusalem. And so he begins preaching to them. He reminds them that he's not drunk. They're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m., third hour of the day. So instead, he cites for them from the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God has just done that. God has just poured out his spirit on the flesh of these, the apostles, which tells us it's the last days. That shouldn't be too much of a surprise to the Christian church. Jesus speaks this way. We are in the end times even now. However, we again have a whole group of American Christians who, who teach that the end times are not yet upon us. The end times are something we need to be looking for. We're in the end times. We've been in the end times ever since Christ ascended into heaven, and we're just waiting for Christ to return. So we're in the last days, even now. And what will be the outcome of the Spirit being poured out by God upon them? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
remember the key point of the prophetic office is not telling about visions and dreams. It's not telling the future. It's speaking God's word. In the New Testament era of the church, your sons and your daughters will proclaim the word of God to their neighbors. They will get to speak God's word to others. This is the mission that Jesus has given to his church around the world. Your young men shall see visions, your old men dream dreams. In the Old Testament, God gave his people, his Old Testament people, through the Spirit, he gave them the gift of revelation. Now, in the New Testament, that limited Old Testament gift has been given to the whole church. Right? We have the new revelation that comes in Jesus Christ, that God has come in the flesh and he has taken his will, his plan, and he has made it known to us all. He calls us friends because we know what the master is doing. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the very beginning of that sermon by the unknown preacher, as he says that in the former days, in the days of old, God spoke to his people by the prophets, but now in these latter days he has spoken to us by his Son. We are prophets in the means of of speaking his word. We are not prophets by having visions and dreams and revelations. God has given his revelation to all of his people. This is that word epiphany, epiphanos, to reveal, to make known. God has made known his plan of salvation to us all. We all have it. Verse 18, even on servants, male and female, the Spirit of God will be poured out and they'll prophesy. So not just your sons and daughters, but even servants, everybody. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too, is another way you might take that. Heavens above, earth below. This changes all of creation. As we well know about the the gospel proclamation about the paradise that awaits the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 20, the sun turned into darkness, the moon to blood. I mean, really, this is the cross onward. We are in the last days, and it has started since even the cross, when we had the darkness that day in the afternoon for three hours, a thick and supernatural darkness. And it continues even up to this day, the, the impact of of God's word upon this broken creation. Before the day of the Lord comes is a reference to Jesus' second coming. When he returns, that's going to be for us as his people a great and magnificent day. It truly will. And verse 21 doesn't need a lot of explanation. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, You are his. Lastly for this weekend, our gospel comes from John chapter 15 and 16. So in chapter 15, it's verses 26 and 27. In chapter 16, it is verse 4b through verse 15. So the first two verses then from chapter 15, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. 
John 15 and 16 is quite clear that Jesus sends the Spirit to us. This has been a matter of much debate in the history of the Christian church. And in part, I don't understand why. I say in part, and I'll come to that. So this is known as the filioque controversy, um, based on the Latin word that was added into the Nicene Creed. The original Nicene Creed said in Greek or Latin, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. It wasn't until later that the Roman Catholic Church chose to add in the Latin phrase filioque, which is, and the Son. And that is one of the biggest reasons, one of the primary things that caused the split between the Eastern Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, and the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church. They also had quarrels over who, who was the head of the church in terms of authority, but that's a different conversation. I don't see the struggle here why the Eastern Orthodox Church does not view that Jesus is also involved in the sending of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he says it quite clearly, right? I will send you the helper from the Father. Or, again, we'll see it down in verse 7 of chapter 16. If Jesus doesn't go, the helper will not come to to us, to you, but if I go, I will send him. It seems pretty clear to me. Now, in fairness, part of what makes the Eastern Orthodox Church so upset about this is that this was originally penned at the Council of Nicaea, and the Church agreed in that council that they would not alter the Nicene Creed. It would stand as it was. But it was altered. Even just the addition of those three little words, for us in English at least. That was the breaking of that. So there are some still today who are upset about it because it is they don't believe that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. But there, there are others who in fairness are upset because there was a promise, there was a pledge, a pact made by the church that this is our faith and we will not change it. And then some, some people came along and changed it. So I see that. That part I can respect and appreciate. But part of this challenge, I don't. All right, so as we keep going, Jesus sends the Spirit to us. Spirit of truth, right? God is the father of truth. The devil is the father of lies. So Jesus sends the Spirit of truth to us. And he is going to bear witness about Jesus. That's the Spirit's job. Sometimes I describe the Trinity as being like a boomerang. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit points us back to, leads us back to Christ. And Jesus brings us back to the Father. So the Spirit, his job is to teach us about Jesus. Word and sacrament ministry in the church does just that. It brings the gifts of God, of Jesus, to his people. You also will bear witness. So this is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Before he ascended into heaven, the task Jesus gives his disciples to do, and that includes you and me today, that we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But Jesus, more specifically here, talking to the apostles, says, because you have been with me from the beginning. So these twelve 
who will lose Judas, because this is Holy Week where this is being said, they will lose Judas. As they go to appoint a twelfth apostle in the book of Acts chapter 1, this condition is mentioned by Peter. This person, whoever we pick, has to have been from the beginning. From the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, which is the baptism in the Jordan River. All right, we jump forward into the middle of verse 4 of chapter 16. We'll read through verse 11. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus has not told his disciples everything because he's been with them. They didn't need to hear it all because they had it all in Jesus, physically present, right there with them. He was caring for them. He was leading them. But now he's about to ascend. He's going away. He's returning to the Father. And so that message already has grieved them. You think of their response when they hear him predict his death and his resurrection. They never respond to this prediction of the resurrection, only to his death. And it always grieves them. Sorrow has filled their heart. They're still seeking after an earthly kingdom. You can remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, wanting to sit at Jesus' right and his left when he came into his kingdom. That's not a reference to heaven. They're expecting him to overthrow the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom for them, and they're going to have power with him. And that's gone. Right? Jesus' words are taking that idea away from them, and that idea is where they have hung their hopes, so they are filled with sorrow. But... Jesus reminds them, well, I guess this is the first time. Jesus tells them for the first time that this is for their good. Things aren't the way they thought they'd be. And that's okay. Jesus is leaving in order to send the Spirit, the Helper. If I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he will convict the world of three things. He's going to use law. He's going to use the, the process of bringing about repentance in our hearts on these three topics. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin is verse 9. The world does not believe in Jesus. Jesus took all of our sins upon his shoulders. He took them to the cross for us. He died to forgive us. But if we are not convicted of those sins, that forgiveness does us no good. If we do not believe in Jesus Christ, we do not have that free life that he offers. And so the Spirit comes to convict. The Spirit also comes to convict the world about righteousness. The world thinks it's righteous in its own ways, right? Everybody's trying to justify themselves all the time. We see it all the time in our culture and in ourselves, if we're honest. But there was only one righteous one, Jesus. And he is leaving, and so now the Spirit must teach the world what righteousness looks like, and he does so by pointing us back to Christ. 
and then also judgment. The one in charge is the one who has to judge. And the ruler of this world has been the devil. But the devil now stands judged, condemned. And so the Holy Spirit will have to teach us the judgment of God again so that we understand what is good and what is right, that we understand the difference between heaven and hell, life and death, and that we may not be judged like the devil was. Our last paragraph, verses 12 to 15, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus still has much to teach them, but they cannot bear it now. Again, Holy Week, they're still grappling with the idea he's going to die and that they don't have the earthly kingdom that they want. They're just, their ears are not ready to hear everything Jesus would have them to hear. And so he withholds. But the Spirit will teach. When the Spirit comes, he will guide us into all truth. And the Spirit does indeed do that for the church. As he works through the fullness of Scripture to share his word with us, and we have so much more that the apostles themselves even got to eventually write down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the, in the years to come. There was much that they still got to learn. The Spirit does not speak of his own authority, but what he hears. So we get this picture in verse 15 that everything that is the Father's, he gives to the Son. The Son gives it to the Spirit. The Spirit gives it to us. The Spirit, verse 14, glorifies Jesus. He points us back to Jesus. He takes what is Jesus's, Jesus, what belongs to Jesus, he gives it to us. His inheritance, his forgiveness, his life, wonderful gifts that have been given to you. So the Spirit takes what belongs to Jesus and declares it unto us. You are a child of God. You are a part of the Father's kingdom. You get to reign over the new heaven and the new earth, caring for this new creation in the paradise, the age that is to come. Yeah.